You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie, just outside of Boston, Mass. And I'm Johanna in Austria, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. Thank you for tuning in, as we like to call it, <laughs> to another episode. We made it through spooky fuckery month, and actually we hope that all of you who are not so much into the hauntings and creepy Halloween things are back with us now. Yeah, come on back. Spooky time is over, <laughs> and now now we're back to our regular programming. Also, congratulations to our patron Sarah H., who was drawn for our Halloween giveaway. We'll be sending you a ghost from the York ghost merchants that Annie found on her summer holiday. And I'd say, (laughs) without further ado, let's get right into this episode. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. So the Natalie Holloway disappearance was actually one of the first episodes that I researched and wrote notes up for on this podcast. That was when you went to Aruba, right? Yeah. We don't usually cover recent cases like this, unless, of course, the family wants that case discussed. And that was the case here. The Holloway family has been desperate to get answers in this case. So when we went to see the Flamingos in Aruba back in 2019 for my sister's 40th birthday, my curiosity was sort of piqued. I had been quite ill when Natalie first went missing, and then My first husband was killed by an elderly driver just a few months after that. He was killed the first week of August 2005. So I kind of missed all of this at the time. You know, Mm -hmm. it was just this huge case that I knew very little about, making it really perfect to do some research on. So that's that's what I did. And back in episode 12, we discussed Natalie's disappearance. We also talk about the brutal murder of 21-year-old Peruvian business student and poker player Stephanie Flores Ramirez uh, by Joran Vandersloot, which happened on May 30th, 2010, which was exactly five years after Natalie was murdered by him. And we no longer have to say allegedly murdered by him because he has finally confessed to killing her on the beach that night after his friends dropped them off. And now we know what happened, and we know he acted alone. And in this episode, what we're going to do is recap some of our previous coverage of this case back in episode 12. We're going to update you with all the new facts, especially because so many of them happened this past year. We're going to be recapping some of what we discussed, but also adding a lot of new details about things we didn't really get into last time. And of course, we're going to end this episode with... Joran's confession detailing exactly what happened. And of course, we'll discuss Natalie's family's feelings on that confession. So that's what we're going to do today. There's a lot of interesting details we cut for this recap, as well as information on the senseless murder of Stephanie Flores Ramirez. There's also that other crazy murder in the first episode of that other suspect who ended up being murdered by a potential victim. That episode is interesting in its own right, really. Definitely go back to episode 12, which was over 200 episodes ago, back in 2019. If you've already listened to that episode, though, don't worry. There's going to be loads of new information today. I think the big thing is looking at it now and knowing what we now know. The thing that strikes me the most, and the reason we wanted to say right from the beginning that he has confessed and he did do it and he did act alone, is because once you know that, It's really, really striking how willing Joran was to just really damage other people in his life without any thought or care at all. You know, I think if we had any doubt at all that he was a sociopath, just totally incapable of feeling much of anything, I think that those, those, that doubt is gone. I think it's a common theme in people like him. Also, I think it's safe to say that he's a a misogynist Mm -hmm. who doesn't value the lives of women, like, at all. No. It's almost as if women are just, like, a thing to him to do as he pleases with them. Yeah. I can't tell with him if it's specifically women or just anybody. I think it's more women. Probably. I think it's more women, honestly. Yeah. Like, he has no problem murdering a a young woman, going home, watching porn. Yeah. 
alleging to to have her sold into sex slavery, right. human trafficking. Just no he conscience. was involved in that. It's it's one hundred percent more women to him. Yeah, no, you're my, right. In my opinion. No, I think you're absolutely right, especially because he did have issues with that when he was in Thailand as well. So yeah. all right, well let's get into it. Well, okay, so Natalie Ann Holloway was born on twenty first of October nineteen eighty six in Clinton, Mississippi. Her parents are David and Beth Holloway, and they divorced in 1993, and Natalie and her younger brother were raised by their mom. In 2000, Beth Holloway gets remarried to George Chuck Tweedy, and when Beth remarries, the family moves to Mountain Brook, Alabama, a horse money suburb of Birmingham, and Natalie would become a member of the National Honor Society. A member of the school dance squad, she made wonderful friends and she had a full academic scholarship to attend the University of Alabama's pre-med program. On Thursday, 26th of May 2005, Natalie and over 100 other recent grads of Mountain Brook High, all around the age of 18, arrived in Aruba for a five-day unofficial graduation trip. They have an all-inclusive package at the resort on an island where the legal drinking age is 18 and not 21, as it is in the US. In Austria, for example, you are allowed to drink beer and wine and things like cider at the age of 16, and anything stronger than that at 18. Yeah, that's how most of, well, I think the UK is like that. And there are some extremes, but I think 21 is one of the oldest countries, the oldest ages by country. The group stayed at a nice resort right on the beach. We were actually there in 2019, and it's really nice. Uh, her parents had very mixed feelings on her going on this trip, but the recent graduates were accompanied by seven chaperones who met with the students each day to check in with them and sort of be a source of guidance or help in an emergency. But the chaperones were not supposed to keep up with their every move, right? These are 18-year-olds. They do not legally need or want chaperones. Police Commissioner Gerald Dombig, who led the initial investigation until 2006, he was quoted saying many times that the behavior of the Mountain Brook kids was really out of hand. He said that, quote, there were wild partying, a lot of drinking, lots of room switching every night. We know the Holiday Inn told them they weren't welcome next year. Natalie, we know she drank all day, every day, end quote. Okay. There are a lot of reports like this. And first of all, is anyone surprised that a group of American kids who can legally drink for the first time, like, they're not going to be the most responsible? They're going to be a little Mm. bit loud? There's a reason why, depending on where, if you travel a lot, you'll come across hotels with age minimums, right? Because they don't want this type of situation in their hotel bothering their guests. We've been those kids having fun. I'm not judging anybody. I just know exactly what I want to avoid. The thing that's frustrating here is that it's this immediate targeting of Natalie, right? It's this immediate point that Natalie was, especially Natalie, was there to party, right? And it's obviously damage control by the Aruban authorities. But we're also sure that, of course, she wanted to party and have an unforgettable time with her friends. She was a hardworking student and she was allowed to... Of course she was. Let her a bit loose after graduating. That's that's normal. 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 This could have been any of either of us, the young women we knew when we were that age. And I think the thing that is just so upsetting and just needs to be very critically looked at and called out is the very clear victim blaming here. Because we just have no interest in perpetuating that. It's so pervasive in cases like this where women are attacked. And the blame immediately shifts to what was she doing? What was she wearing? You know, as if that makes any difference. So it's 30th of May, and it's the last night of the trip. They're in Aruba, they're having a great time. They're partying at a popular bar in Oranjestad called Carlos and Charlie's. And there is, and I know we talked about this already in episode 12, I think. There is a Carlos and Charlie's in Cancun, where I used to live. I didn't work there, but I worked at a similar kind of similar club and it was wild. (laughs) Most of our customers were US teenagers and combined that with an open bar 
And you can imagine the things I've seen and experienced. And Carlos and Charles is pretty much the same. And so at this bar on the last evening in Aruba, she runs into a new friend. And he's 17-year-old Joran van der Slot, who she likely met a couple of days earlier already, playing uh, blackjack at a local casino. Joran was born on 6th of August 1987 in Arnhem, Netherlands, to his parents to his parents Paulus, a lawyer, and Anita, an art teacher. And when he was around three years old in 1990, his family moved to Aruba. And Aruba is a part of the Netherlands. For those of you who don't know, it was formerly a part of the Netherlands until is. In 1986, Aruba became a separate self-governing part of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. So they moved there and they settled down. And in school, Joran is a star athlete. He plays a few sports, actually, including soccer and tennis. And he competed with his father in very prestigious double matches. From Natalie's perspective, I think there would be absolutely no red flags with him. He was kind of cute, I guess. Uh, I'm sure he was charming. And he was the son of a very wealthy uh, and very well-connected local family. Yeah, I totally agree. It's very cringy to me when people covering this act like Natalie was being reckless, leaving a club with someone she had previously met under these circumstances. You know, it's, I just don't think she did anything that wild or reckless or dangerous. That's all. Joran's mother would later say that she worried about him because she knew he was a liar who constantly snuck out of the house to go to casinos. Also, in her defense, I think there's no Dr. Spock equivalent for, like, raising a sociopath. Like, so your baby has no conscience. Like, how to navigate that, right? Like, there's just nothing there, though, to make them think that he was a danger to anything other than their bank account and his grades. He was an honor student, I think. As for Nadia, I think Ramirez is the last name. She's the mother of the Calpo brothers. And she was absolutely adamant that her boys were innocent. Telling reporters in 2005, quote, My sons did nothing wrong but give their friend a ride. There is no reason for them to be in jail. I don't know if Joran did something, but I know that my boys did not. End quote. And not to get too preachy again, but there was nothing really for Natalie to worry about either, right? I just, the reason they want to make it seem like she did something to deserve this, because it comes up over and over and over again is because it makes it less scary, right? It makes you feel like you'll be safe. But it's nonsense, and that's why it is so scary, because Natalie didn't miss anything, right? This is a kid even younger than she was, so he's only 17. He's out to have fun with a few local friends. They live on an island, right? Like, what's he gonna do? Drive her to Nevada? You know what I mean? It's like, it just feels like she should have been safe. She had no reason. I also want to add that nowadays we are way more aware, I think, than in the early 2000s of how sexual assault can happen anytime with anybody, right? Yeah. Back then it was like, still, I don't know how to describe. Do you know what I, I mean? I do. I absolutely do know what you mean. Yeah. I think nowadays the young women are not as trusting anymore and rightfully so. Exactly. Rightfully so. Mm-hmm. They need to protect themselves. But back then, if you met a 17-year-old guy... Uh, and you've met him a couple of days already or, or run into him frequently, yeah. you wouldn't have really worried about anything sinister. You don't think... In my opinion. No, you don't think a 17-year-old high school student is going to murder you. Yeah. You might worry that he'd get handsy, but, like, murder would never, never, you know? Now we know better. Thank God. Yeah. But this is the kind of thing no one can prepare for. Like, this is such an apparent, like, just a, yeah. I just don't think there was any reason for her to worry about leaving with them for a ride back to her hotel. You know, she just wanted to make out on the beach a little bit. Yeah. Who hasn't had kind of these summer romances? Of course. In their youth. Yeah. Did, did all of us worry back then? No, we didn't. Not that we'd be murdered. Yeah. So Natalie was last seen by her friends as she was leaving the nightclub with them around uh, 1.30 a.m. on Monday. That's the 30th of May. And then the next day, when she didn't appear in the lobby to meet up for the return flight, friends went to her room looking for her and they found her packed luggage and her passport, but no sign of Natalie. 
The police and her parents were called, and when her mother got the call from one of the chaperones around 11am saying Natalie, who was never late, uh, saying that she was missing, she called 911 immediately and the FBI, and she, her husband and some friends immediately arranged for a private jet to take them to Aruba the same day. Aruban authorities initiated searches all over the island and surrounding waters, but found nothing. And meanwhile, within four hours of landing on the island, Natalie's mom Beth and her husband Jack give the Aruban police the name and address of Joran van der Slot, saying they know that he is the person Natalie was last seen with. Beth and her husband and their friends went to the van der Slot house with two Aruban policemen to look for Natalie, and they talked to Joran van der Slot, and he initially denied knowing Natalie, but he then told them a story corroborated by Deepak Kalpo, who was also at the house. Yeah, so in the second story, since he initially said he didn't know her, which is like, come on, dude, like you met her twice. <sighs> so now he says they drove Natalie to the California lighthouse area of Arashi Beach because Natalie wanted to see sharks and then they dropped her off at her hotel around 2 a.m. Joran claimed that Natalie fell down as she got out of the car, but refused his help, and as they were driving away, she was stumbling toward the lobby when she was approached by a man in a black shirt, similar to those worn by security guards, and that's the last they saw her, and she was fine when they left. Practically speaking, the drive from Oranyastad to Arashi Beach will take about 20 minutes, and then it's maybe another 10 or so to the Holiday Inn from that area. So if he really did drop her at her hotel at 2 a.m., they would not have done anything except drive around and then drop her off. There is no camera footage showing them dropping her off at the Holiday Inn, but there were ways to get back to your room without going through the lobby, so that didn't necessarily mean anything. It confirmed to investigators that he was lying about where they left her, though. There's a massive search. The Dutch Marines were searching the shoreline. Hundreds of volunteers from the U.S. and Aruba were searching. People were flying in from the U.S. to help. The Aruban government gave civil servants the day off to search. It was a huge undertaking. On 4th of June 2005, the police have three Aruban men as their lead suspects. And these are, of course, Joran van der Slot and the Kalpo brothers. The next day, so on 5th of June, the Aruban police detained two former security guards at a nearby hotel brought in on suspicion of murder and kidnapping. Both are released eight days later without being charged. They were probably taken into custody because of what Joran had said about Natalie being approached by security guards. Aruban law allows an arrest based on serious suspicion, even if there's no initial evidence. But in order to keep a suspect in custody, they have to keep showing evidence that supports the arrest was fair. On 5th of June 2005, there's a huge vigil for Natalie at the California Lighthouse. Quick sidebar about the lighthouse. It's named after the SS California which sank off the island in 1891, which made the need for said lighthouse crystal clear. But it's very often confused with the more infamous Californian, which, infamously, I guess, did not come to the aid of the Titanic as it sank. The Californian was the one that saw the rockets, but did not uh, respond. Yeah, they thought there was a party going on, yeah. This is not that ship. This ship sank decades before Titanic set sail. But even local dive places will have the two confused. So you will see on like uh, things that you can do, excursions to do, information from dive places that you can dive the wreck of the infamous Californian. And you cannot, no one is actually, it, I don't think that wreck has been found. And the wreck that is off of Aruba is the California. Also, up at the lighthouse, the oldest church in Aruba, which has, it's a church with the really good vibes and views. There's also a gorgeous restaurant that we did not eat at, but we did take a picture of Arashi Beach from up there, and it's, it's lovely. On 9th of June 2005, as the security guards are still being held by police, Joran van der Sloot and Satish and Deepak Kalpo are arrested on suspicion of kidnapping and murder. The Aruban police say they were forced to arrest Joran and the Kalpo brothers before they wanted to because of pressure put on them by Natalie's family and in turn by the media, and that they'd had surveillance on their phone and email since the beginning. So 
what they are claiming is they had it under control, they were surveilling them, but they had to make the arrest sooner as they wanted to. Yeah. Everyone forgets this when a few days later, on 11th of June, a spokesman for the Aruban Minister of Justice says that they knew Natalie was dead and the location of her body. He later retracted the statement, saying he was a victim of a quote-unquote misinformation campaign. You would hope that a spokesperson would really verify their sources on something like this. That's what makes me so salty, because it's that first guy, he's another official spokesperson. He was like, well, we know Natalie especially was wasted every day. And it's like, really, dude, come on. Like all of the youth Like every single, yeah, exactly. (laughs) One week after the arrest of the three main suspects, another arrest was made, and a local DJ was taken in by the police, most likely because of info given to them by Joran and the Kalpo brothers. And he was held for nine days before being released. Joran kept coming up with different stories about where and when he had last seen Natalie. His third story was that they had gone to the Marriott beach, just down the beach from her resort. And Joran said the Kalpa brothers dropped them off, they fooled around a little bit, and he had then left her there on the beach and gone home. It's a half-mile walk back along the beach, back to her own hotel, so totally plausible. And it's the closest to what we now know happened. But again, Joran kept changing his story. That's what should have happened, right? I mean, what should have happened is that he should have taken her to her hotel. Yeah. Make sure she gets in safely. Well, exactly. And leave. Exactly. Worst case scenario, he could have just left. Yeah. Now, story number four is that Joran was dropped off at home and the Kalper brothers took Natalie back to her hotel. This is also where it seems the Kalpo brothers and Joran are starting to turn on each other in prison, which, yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, so totally not a red flag at all that the stories keep changing all the time. Like, that's, that's totally not suspicious, right? <laughs> right. On 4th of July 2005, Deepak Kalpo and Satish Kalpo were released without charges, and Natalie's mother, Beth, is very upset, rightfully so. She makes a statement asking that no one, including the US State Department, allow the Kalpa brothers to enter their countries should they try and leave the island. Yeah, and that's pretty much when the citizens of Aruba turn on her and suggest if she doesn't like their laws, she should leave, which is also a little bit understandable, I'd say. I mean, I can see both sides here. Yeah. Then Beth makes another statement apologizing if she offended any of the people of Aruba and clarifying a few of the rumors. Natalie's family increases the reward for information leading to her safe return from 200,000 to 1 million. I mean, she's, she's a desperate mother looking for her child. Yeah. What wouldn't you do? I can understand why she's upset or... I think people in these situations will always have the feeling there isn't enough done, right? Absolutely. And I just, it just, the thing that I just can't get over as we're kind of going back through this information is one 17 year old kid. This is all because of one 17 year old kid. All of this. The Kalpo brothers made friends with the wrong kid. Now, Joran would be held for another 60 days. The Royal Netherlands Air Force deploys three F 16 aircraft equipped with infrared sensors to search, but again, they found nothing. And then there's the business with the gardener and the jogger. Two tips we discussed in episode 12 that were extensively investigated, but were ultimately a waste of time and resources. The FBI announced that Aruban authorities had provided its agency with documents, suspect interviews and other evidence. A park ranger found a piece of duct tape with strands of blonde hair attached to it on a beach, and the samples were tested twice and were not Natalie's. On 26th of August 2005, the Kalper brothers are rearrested along with a new suspect, 21-year-old Freddy Arambazis, in what was ultimately an unsuccessful bid to get the Kalper brothers to confess. The Holloways' luck with keeping their daughter in the media also ran out because Hurricane Katrina had just devastated New Orleans and the Gulf Coast of the US, and every news camera was focused on the devastation and horrifying situation over there. Then, in early September of 2005, Joran van der Sloot was released, although he's still the main suspect, and days after his release, all of the other suspects were released without charges. Joran is now free, but he just cannot keep his murdery mouth shut. This guy is a sociopath who has to keep inserting himself into the case, and in the months following his release, he gave many interviews. The biggest was broadcast on Fox News over three nights, 
During the interview, Vandersloot says that Natalie wanted to have sex with him, but he did not want to have sex with her because he didn't have a condom, and he's a good boy who would never. He also claimed that she wanted them to stay on the beach that night, but he had to go to school in the morning, and he was like, no, I can't hang with your hard partying ways. So he was picked up by Satish around 3 a.m., he says, and he left Natalie on the beach. It's honestly infuriating that this was given any airtime at all, given how many stories Yorin had told at this point, like how many times we already knew that he had lied, and yet he's still being given serious airtime. Satish Kalpo's attorney stated that his client had dropped them off at the beach and had gone home and gone to sleep, and had never returned to drive Yorin home again, which we now know is the truth. The most infuriating thing is Yorin playing the victim, because he just keeps going. So with this lie, he then says he wasn't truthful at first because he was so sure that she would turn up, and he was just so ashamed to have left her there on the beach, even though that's what she wanted. How awful for you, Yorin. You must feel so guilty about that. All right. Uh, So more people are interviewed, more places are searched. That spokesperson for the Aruban Ministry of Justice gave an interview to CBS, probably in response to Yorin's interview. And in it, he tries to just desperately and bizarrely keep shifting the blame back to Natalie. He says he thinks Natalie probably died because of alcohol and or drug poisoning and was never murdered. We've heard this before. This guy just really wants you to think she had a drug problem that never existed. But then it gets weird because he doesn't just double down. He says he believes that someone later hid her body. So he says he thinks or he believes the official position of Aruba because he's, you know, he's their minister of justice. So he claims that their official position is that she died of an overdose and then someone later hid her body and then they moved it more than once to keep it from ever being found. And this is terrible, because this is the thing that happens. It's an awful enough thing for someone to die of an overdose, because the people that were with them are too afraid of being arrested to get help, right? It is senseless and tragic, and it happens every single day. But that is not what happened here. And now you're cashing in on the pain of even more people. Imagine not being Natalie's parents and having to hear this from an official spokesperson. That's the official position of the Ministry of Justice. It's awful. Right? It's not like some yellow press thing. It's, it's an official opinion that they have over there yeah. on your child's death, disappearance. It's awful. Awful. He did have one practical point to make, though. He said that Aruba had spent about 3 million US dollars on the investigation, which was about 40% of the police operational budget. That's too much of a budget for one case, one might think. I have to say, I mean, they did really search. The The search was really thorough, in my opinion. Agreed. Aruban authorities resumed the search but requested help in the investigation by authorities from the Netherlands, and on 16th of April 2007, a combined Aruban-Dutch team began pursuing the investigations in Aruba. Now, a book by Van der Sloot and reporter Zvetsdana Vukojevic, titled The Zag Natalie Holloway, The Case of Natalie Holloway, was published in Dutch in April of 2007, and in the book, Van der Sloot gives the version of the night Holloway disappeared and the media frenzy that followed, and he maintains his innocence. On 27th of April, a new search was launched at the Van der Sloot home in Aruba, and one month later, the Kalpo family residence was also searched. Then, in November of 2007, Joran and the two brothers are rearrested on suspicion of manslaughter, but again, were set free the next month. It seems to be a constant back and forth in this case, but they're always coming back to, to Joran, right? And even though the investigations are closed due to lack of evidence on 18th of December 2007, that doesn't mean that the authorities stopped looking for evidence to prove that Joran and the Kalper brothers were responsible. On 31st of January 2008, Dutch investigative journalist Peter de Vries said that he thinks he knew what had happened in the case of Natalie Holloway. 
He shared his findings with police, stating that he would publicly show the newfound evidence in a special episode of his television program. On 3rd of February 2008, the undercover video aired on Dutch television and it featured Joran admitting to his friend Patrick van der Eem that he was there during Natalie Holloway's death. He doesn't know his being recorded by Patrick, who is working for De Vries. Joran said that Natalie had suffered from some kind of seizure while they were having sex on the beach. After failing to revive her, he said that he called a friend who helped him load her body on a boat and then dumped her body into the sea. He also said on the tape, quote, I think I'm incredibly lucky that she's never been found, because if she had been found, I would be in deep shit, end quote. And this is the fifth version of his story, and it's actually the first time that his story includes him being there when Natalie died. It's the only thing he ever said that was true. He was very lucky, because if her body had been found... It's true. Yep. In Aruba, prosecutor decides that while the video was admissible, the evidence was deemed insufficient to warrant rearrest because Joran argued that he was lying to impress Van der Eem, who he believed was a drug dealer. The show was watched by 7 million viewers in the Netherlands and was the most popular non-sports program in Dutch television history. In March of 2008, Van der Eem gave an interview for the Aruban television and after thinking that the cameras had been turned off, he tells the interviewer he'd been friends with Van der Sloot for years, proving he lied on De Vries' show when he said that he had met Van der Sloot in 2007. He also said on camera that he expected to become a millionaire through his involvement in Natalie's case and he claimed that he knew the person who he claims disposed of Holloway's body and that van der Sloot had asked him for 2,000 euros to buy the men's silence. According to Dutch news service ANP, van der Eem, who had already signed a book deal, was furious, quote-unquote, after learning of the taping, and he threatened, again I'm doing air quotes, uh, the interviewer who sought legal advice. Van der Eem released a book entitled Overboard, on June 25th, and then on 13th of December, he was arrested in the Netherlands for hitting his girlfriend with a crowbar and engaging in risky driving behavior while fleeing police. So you see, they're all really a lovely group of young, fine men. Yeah, if you haven't listened to episode 12, there's a really wild story in there about another one of them that's, yeah. In November of 2008, Fox News aired an hour-long interview with host Greta van Susteren and Joran van der Slot, in which Joran said that he had sold Holloway as a sex slave for $10,000 to a man he had met at a casino. He says he was paid twice by the man, first when Natalie was kidnapped and a second time later on to keep quiet. Van der Sloot also alleged that his father paid off two police officers who had found out that she was taken to Venezuela, which is only 15 miles from Aruba. Fox also aired an audio recording provided by Joran, which he claimed was a phone conversation between him and his father. In this conversation, Joran's father displays knowledge of Joran's involvement in human trafficking. And please keep in mind, her family has to watch these things every time they air because they are desperate for news of her, which is why it sucks so much that after the interview aired, Van der Sloot called Fox and admitted he had been lying and that the second voice that could be heard in the recording was not really the voice of his father, it was him doing both of the voices. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just... It just reminds me of like... If you were trying to be like, oh, I can't do this thing, you'd be like, like pretending, like a child yeah. in high school, pretending. I just can't. I can't. But are we 100% certain that, that it wasn't his father's voice? Because I'm always like, hmm. I know. Not so sure. No, I think in this case it was him. I don't believe anything he says. Nothing. nothing. Like nothing. Nothing. And I do think his, his dad might have been a little bit sketchy, but no, I think he was totally just doing both voices. In September of 2008, Peter de Vries accepted an International Emmy Award in Current Affairs on his coverage of Natalie's disappearance with her mother, Beth, as his companion for the evening. Also in 2008, Joran van der Sloot had moved to Thailand to get away from the media. And in Thailand, he was apparently involved in human trafficking schemes. He just shows us over and over and over again who he is, that he feels no remorse, no guilt, 
Joran's only concern is and will only ever be for himself. And that's what I mean. I'm pretty sure that the human trafficking he was involved here, again, concerned women it being did. trafficked. Absolutely. And that's because he has no Regard. sense of guilt towards women. Also, he's the perfect example for wherever you go, there you are. Yep, that's true. I do think, though, that Joran... I absolutely agree that he does not care about women. But I think if there was money to be made in children, he'd figure out how to get children. 100%. Yeah. I think that was just the easiest for him because he himself was kind of not unattractive. You know what I mean? So... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just... Oof. So in February 2010, Paulus van der Sloot dies of a heart attack while playing tennis which is very inconvenient for Joran, whose financial future is now less certain, right? But he has a plan to fix that. On March 29th, 2010, Joran gets in touch with Beth Holloway's lawyer, I think. There's like, he emails someone, it doesn't really matter. He gets in touch and says that he will take Beth or one of her representatives to the location of Natalie's body. He will tell the truth about her death. And then they will be able to recover her remains. And all they have to do is pay him $250,000. He wants a quarter of a million dollars, but he'll settle for an immediate advance of twenty-five grand, And then the rest of it can be paid to him once the DNA on the remains is confirmed as hers. I can't with the audacity. I know. So Beth calls the FBI. And she tells them what's going on. And they proceed with getting him the money. They use an undercover agent in Aruba to deliver 10 grand to him. And then on May 10th, they transfer the additional 15,000 into his account in the Netherlands. And they chase down all of these leads that he's given them, which he kind of immediately says, oh yeah, I, I lied about all of that, actually. Because of course he did. Of course he lied. But now there's some real stuff to charge him with, right? Now the U.S. actually has things they can charge him with. But in the meantime, he's got 25 grand and he heads first to Colombia and then on to Peru. And with 2020 hindsight, this was a huge mistake, right? Because mm. if they had been able to detain him immediately rather than trying to build a larger case, but no one could know. No one could ever have known, despite what a liar this guy was, that in Peru on May 30th, Joran would meet Stephanie Flores Ramirez, who is, like Natalie, just this beautiful, bright young woman around his age with just nothing but success in front of her and a large, loving family behind her. And unfortunately, there is more than enough evidence to prove he brutally murdered Stephanie on the fifth anniversary of his murdering Natalie, and he is arrested and held on those charges. On June 30th, while being held for murdering Stephanie in Peru, Joran was indicted by a federal grand jury in the United States on charges of extortion and wire fraud, and he admitted to that in an interview published with De Telegraph on 6 September 2010, which said, this is just a quote by Joran, saying, quote, I wanted to get back at Natalie's family. Her parents had been making my life tough for five years. End quote. Just flames. Flames up the side of my face. Her parents. I swear to God, I was just rolling my eyes so hard you would have thought I'm possessed by a demon. <sighs> I mean, that poor boy with this mean, mean parents making his life so, so hard. I just my can't. My heart breaks for him. Right? Again, the audacity to say something like that. Ugh, the worst. In January 2012, Van der Sloot pled guilty to the murder of Stephanie Flores and was sentenced to 28 years for the murder and must pay $75,000 to the Flores family. Hours after learning of the sentence, Van der Sloot was transferred to Piedras Gordas, which is a maximum security prison. In the meantime, Dave Holloway makes the awful decision to file a petition with the Alabama courts to have his daughter declared legally dead. Natalie's mom, Beth, was not ready for this and it ended up in a painful back and forth that came to an end in January of 2012 when the judge signed the order declaring Natalie Holloway legally dead. 
Today we know what her family always suspected, that she died on 30th of May 2005. In July of 2014, Wanderslot married Lady Figuora, who was seven months pregnant with his baby at the time of the wedding. In September of 2014, Joran became a father, and this kid has nothing to do with any of this. We sincerely wish that kid all the best. Yeah, we sure do. But what happened before that? In August 2014, Wanderslot was transferred to the more isolated Chayapalka prison, and he was at that time predicted to be released in 2038. Fast forward to 15th of July 2021. Peter de Vries, the Dutch investigative reporter, died in Amsterdam following a shocking attack. The passionate journalist who dedicated his life to finding justice for cold cases had been attacked and shot, leaving an interview a week earlier in Amsterdam. His injuries were too severe to overcome and his devastated family had to say goodbye. He was only 64 years old and his assassination was condemned worldwide as a crime against journalists and against journalism. He seemed to have been assassinated due to another case he was investigating involving gang activities. And he also was not the only person assassinated around this this gang violence, but I don't believe there has been a trial yet. And that would be its own episode, honestly. That's a huge, huge case. So where are we now? We're getting into current events, and 2023 has been quite the year for Joran van der Sloot. In January, he had an additional 18 years added to his Peruvian prison sentence for a cocaine trafficking ring that he set up in prison with the help of a girlfriend. Who has the time? Well, he has more than enough time, apparently. He does. I guess that's true. I think that they need to have him making more license plates. But yeah, so in, in Peru, you can accumulate time in prison. Um, so they will add the 18 years to the years that he's already serving. But there's a maximum of 35 years in prison total if you didn't already have a life sentence, which really sucks when the person you're trying to keep in prison started murdering people as a teenager. In May of, t of this past year, it seems that Joran filed for divorce from his wife um, because he met a younger, hotter woman during that coke ring thing that he was running in prison. And his soon-to-be ex-wife is, if you believe the tabloids, going to remove his last name from their child so that the poor kid doesn't have the stigma of having the last name of a murderer. And his ex is going to do her best to get on with her life, which, honestly, it's the best thing that could happen to the two of them. Mm -hmm. They're going to be just fine without that man in their lives, I think. And that brings us to the latest developments. In June 2023, Joran was flown from Peru to Birmingham, Alabama, a long flight in which we hope he had a child just kicking the back of his seat the whole time. And then when he got to Alabama, he was taken into custody at the Hoover City Jail. I found a really great article. It's from the Associated Press, and it was from October 19th, 2023. And Kim Chandler writes the clearest article I found. So here are some excerpts. I'll link, of course, to the entire article. Kim Chandler writes, quote, Vandersloat, 36, pleaded guilty on Wednesday, 18th October, to federal charges of attempting to extort money from Beth Holloway in 2010 in exchange for information about the location of her daughter's body. The plea agreement included an unusual provision for Vandersloat to, quote, provide all information and evidence about what happened to Natalie Holloway and to let her family hear him in real time give his account to federal investigators. Under the terms of the plea agreement, Natalie Holloway's parents listened and watched several weeks ago as Vandersloot, under questioning from his own attorney, described what happened on the beach. Prosecutors filed excerpts of the conversation with the court, which we have to share. He said Natalie Holloway was physically fighting his sexual advances and that he kicked her extremely hard in the face while she was still lying down. Vandersloat said the teen was already unconscious, or even dead, when he picked up a nearby cinder block and brought it down on her face. Quote, I smash her head in with it completely, Vandersloat said, according to a October 3rd transcript of the meeting. He then said he dragged her body until it was knee-deep in the waves, 
and pushed her out to sea. Quote, It's just blistering to your soul, and it hurts so deeply, Beth Holloway said, of hearing the details. But you know that you're there in a functionality role, because this is the moment where I've been searching for for 18 years. Even as hard as it is to hear, it is still not as torturous as the not knowing. It was time for me to know. End quote. Dave Holloway, Natalie's father, called Vandersloat, quote, evil personified, in a statement issued after the sentencing hearing. He said that after witnessing the confession, he believes Vandersloat killed his daughter, but questioned his story of acting alone to dispose her body and conceal the crime. Quote, While I am satisfied that the defendant murdered Natalie alone, I have no doubt others provided him with aid and assistance in preventing us from being able to return Natalie home, David Holloway said. Natalie Holloway's body was never found during land and sea searches along the beach. Beth Holloway said she recognized her feisty daughter and Vandersloat's description of her kneeing him between the legs when he refused to stop his sexual advances. Yes, I said that's her, Beth Holloway recalled with a brief smile. She fought like hell. I think she fought like hell with her killer. She stood her ground. Mark White, an attorney for David Holloway, said he understands from law enforcement authorities that Vandersloat cannot be prosecuted in Aruba, even with his confession, because the statute of limitations has expired. The Aruba Public Prosecutor's Office said it was not immediately clear whether Vandersloat could face murder charges on the island. The investigation into Natalie Holloway's disappearance is still open and authorities will, quote, follow up on any serious leads, said Anne Angela, a prosecutor's office spokesperson. Peru agreed to temporarily extradite Vandersloat to the U.S. to face proceedings on the extortion charge. He is expected to be returned to Peru in the coming days after the settlement of the U.S. criminal case. His 20-year sentence for extortion will run concurrently with prison time he's serving for another killing in Peru. Vandersloat's guilty plea in a crowded courtroom, a few miles from where Natalie Holloway attended high school, came three days before what would have been her 37th birthday. She had planned to go to medical school, her mother said. I fully believe now, today, she would be a doctor, married, children, Beth Holloway said. She said she is undecided how she will spend her daughter's birthday, but that she feels like now the, quote, never-ending nightmare is over. We've been searching so desperately for those answers, Beth Holloway said. It's hard to hear what he did, but it's very victorious to finally be at the end of this nightmare. End quote. As painful as it must be, I think they must have felt also some heavy relief finally knowing the truth. I mean, they suspected it all those years anyway. Yeah. But hearing, hearing it, it finally, I think that must have been... And the details, as awful... Overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, like, as awful as the details were, I wanted every detail. Like, when I got the police report, the accident report, all the hospital reports when my first husband was killed, I read every single heartbreaking detail because I had to know. I'm glad it would have all been very, very quick. Uh, I don't think she would have suffered, really, at all. So that's a that's a blessing. I agree with Natalie's dad. I know Beth said that the story, this story was all corroborated, but I'm not sure how anybody could necessarily corroborate him disposing the body alone. It's hard to believe mm. that the current would be so strong that walking her out to knee length, knee, I keep wanting to say knee length, knee depth, <laughs> would be enough for her body to be taken by the current and never seen again. But it's possible. I mean, obviously it's possible. That's the one thing I wonder as well. Like, I have the feeling in most places it's rather hard to make a body disappear from the shoreline by just pushing it out into the ocean. I know the waters there have sharks, if I remember correctly, so that might be a possibility, but you'd think that at least something would have been found, something. I mean, the, the search, so many people, so many authorities yeah. searched for such a long time, and I, I keep thinking and keep coming back in my head to the story of the crematorium. Oh, really? So you think maybe her body was never pushed in the ocean at all? You think that could all, it could all be a lie? I mean, yeah. this is the thing that's so hard with him because you can't believe a single thing that he says. Like, you just can't yeah. believe. I do believe that what he said, like what he said makes sense, that, that his friends dropped them off and that they, 
you know, we're kissing a little bit. And when she said no, he tried to force things and it all went wrong very quickly. But the shark thing, my understanding is there aren't that many sharks around Aruba. You know, I went snorkeling and, and didn't really worry about that. And that was, I asked the snorkeling guide that question about sharks specifically for this reason when we were out there. And he said, no, not really. There are really serious currents. So it's 100% possible that her body was taken by the current into deeper water. If she already had an injury, that could have been it. But the, like, as you said, it's, there are interesting ideas and you wonder, was his dad part of it? You know, hiding things. He's gone now, so we'll never know. I think the thing that's so scary about Yorin is just how incredibly quickly he became violent. He could have just left her on the beach and that would have been it, right? She'd have had a story about a creep and gone on to have a great life. Same thing with Stephanie as well. He just, it's like, he doesn't seem like a super violent person. Do you know what I mean? He's not someone with a history of fighting. He's not somebody with a history of abuse in any way. But then all of a sudden, it seems like it seems like he doesn't choose violence. He chooses death. It's like when he chooses violence, it's it's all or nothing. I mean, as I said in the beginning, I think he's the prime example of a person who doesn't consider a woman to be anything else but a thing for him to do as he pleases. And then you pair that with a hurt ego because Natalie refused to have sex with him. And, and then she even dared to fight back. Right. I don't know. I picture him in his mind. He's like, look what you made me do. Agreed. 100%. He's that kind of person, I think. I totally agree. And also Beth said in another interview that Joran said that when he got home, he watched porn, he took a shower, he went to bed, uh, then he got up, he went to school in the morning, like nothing had happened. Like there was no indication that he felt guilty, that, that, you know. Yeah, it's chilling. It's not something that happened and he was shocked and devastated about what he Mm -mm. did. No, no remorse. He was like, yeah, whatever. I mean, totally agree. some, some girl. His mother is sort of, um, after what happened with Stephanie in Peru, that murder, I think she sort of washed her hands of that situation, which is sad. It's all just sad. I feel bad for the Calpo brothers and everything he put them through, everything he put his family through, and obviously, most of all, everything Natalie's family. Especially her brother. I keep thinking of Natalie's little brother, who's now an adult and has grown up his entire life like this is his life. Joran was flown back to Peru on Halloween, so just a couple days before we recorded this episode. If I've mathed this correctly, and I probably have not, I think the earliest he's out is like 2047, and he'd be around 60, so very much still capable of murdering someone else. Then we're just going to have to watch and see. But now we have the, the conclusion of the murder of Natalie Holloway. Honestly, I would be happy and content if I wouldn't hear from him until I hear that he died in prison. Agreed. Yep. This is just someone who should never be, never be allowed in public again, ever. Yeah. Ever. He will always be hurting someone to make his life better. In German, we have the saying, uh, somebody geht über Leichen, walking over dead bodies mm. so he doesn't care as long as he advances and as long as as long as it is like it gets him a positive outcome for his own personal life he doesn't he doesn't bother about anybody else he doesn't care i know it must be great right like don't you think it would be great to actually like don't get me wrong i don't want to be a murderer or anything but like i feel such crippling guilt about every single thing i say and do um, it must be great to just have zero i fucks. don't think it must be great honestly but you wouldn't know that you're yeah, but you know, I believe in 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 things after this life. Yeah, I agree. Where you get the, you know, Catholic with the guilt. <laughs> I'm fine with the guilt. Yeah, it's okay. You're fine with the guilt. <laughs> I'm comfortable with the guilt. Don't take the guilt away. Yeah, but the island of Aruba is not a scary place full of murderers. It's a beautiful island. What it does have is a really really serious problem with stray dogs, especially And I wanted to highlight a charity that a friend of mine is actually really, really involved with. They're the Luna Foundation of Aruba. And uh, if you have a planned trip to Aruba, they are always looking for flight volunteers to fly dogs back with them to get them into U.S. foster homes. So you can check out uh, www.luna-aruba.com or just check out Luna, L-U-N-A, Aruba and uh, see if you can support them. It's always nice to kind of shine a light on a charity that we'd all be 
interested in on the island, and I've made donations to them in the past, and this one will be in honor of this confession. What about something good? Do we have something good this week? Um, I think my something good is, first of all, our fall here was absolutely lovely, amazing. I mean, a little bit uh, too warm, like it was really summery weather up until now, uh, which is also fine because <laughs> I was able to save a lot of uh, firewood and, and gas to heat the house. Nice. So that's a positive. And it was just so nice to take walks with the dogs in the morning, in the woods, in the fields. It was beautiful, like blue skies the leaves turning, um, changing colors. And now it's starting with the foggy weather in the morning, which I also love. Like, I'm so ready now. You know I love summer. Mm -hmm. You know it, Annie. But I'm so ready for December. I can't wait. Yeah. I'm so excited. Philip is going to come home um, mid of November, and <laughs> he's already dreading having to climb up in the attic and... Uh, <laughs> get down these huge, huge boxes of Christmas stuff, oh, Christmas ornaments I have up there. It's going to be awesome. So though. yeah, but it's something good. Like th this fall was beautiful, just beautiful. It was. How about you? I just got back from such a fun weekend. So longtime listeners know, long story short, I'm adopted, found my birth mother about seven years ago. And I have um, amazing, amazing uh, siblings, biological half-siblings. My birth mom and her husband are awesome. Just that whole family are great. And we spend as much time together as we can. But one of the cool things that I found out is that we have the same wedding anniversary. And this year was their 40th. So myself and my siblings, Moose, Paul, uh, siblings, husband, you know, niece, we all got together, the 10 of us, and went to, uh, went away to Florida together for the weekend. And it was fantastic. We had such a great time. And one of my brothers talked me into going to Halloween Horror Nights, which I never in a million years thought that would happen. I would love to go there. I was so jealous when I saw you went. <laughs> Johanna, it was so much fun. I wanted to message you immediately yeah. to say, all right, guess what we're doing tonight? But I looked at the clock and I'm like, <laughs> she's already in bed. It was so much fun. We're definitely, we're definitely going to do it again. So yeah, my brother was right. It was... It was really fun. Really cool vibe. Super fun night. I always just dread it because I have the feeling there's a lot of people there, obviously. The reason that we went was my brother was watching like the, he has the app. So he was watching what the lines look like. And he said, I think it's not that busy tonight. And it wasn't. It really wasn't too bad. So okay, yeah, that's cool. we waited about about an hour in line for the houses, I guess. Most of the haunted houses. Mm -hmm. I only did one, ha uh, no, I did two houses, but the long line was the one for the Last of Us house. And I didn't do that one because I went on, um, I wanted to go on some some of the like little rides that were open instead. But like the um, Gringotts ride at Harry Potter was open and the Men in Black ride. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. So good. So good. The Mummy ride was broken. I was really sad. I couldn't go on that one. It was broken when I was there as well. And it's well. my favorite. And I, my spine is not up for the rocket anymore. But it was, I just, I would absolutely go again. It was really, really fun. Yeah. Really fun. All right. That's it. I think that's it. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind, please take a moment and leave us a review on iTunes. We would be so, so, so grateful. Really, please, please. For everything else, please go to freshhellpodcast.com. There you see links to our Instagram, to our beautiful merch store, to our Patreon. Uh, talking about Patreon, we're going to release the date for the murder tier get-together soon. And uh, we're also going to record another episode of Tell Me Everything. And if you have a story that you want out there, you want to talk to us about, we would love if you contact us for another Tell Me Everything segment. That's right. I think that's it, honestly. Yeah, join us in the Facebook group. That's always fun. And please tell your pets we said hi. Does anybody of you have flamingos like in their garden or mm. do you live somewhere where there is flamingos nearby? I want to hear all about that. <laughs> Be kind to them. Be kind to the other humans out there at least once. Uh, you know, if they're assholes, they're assholes, let them be. Yeah. And the hardest part of it all, be kind to yourself. That's right. And just remember, if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.